So I'm really delighted in my uh, first evening as chair, as, pre as president of the society, uh, to welcome Sarah Fine from King's College London, senior lecturer in philosophy. Sarah works on migration, immigration. Uh, her talk today, Refugees, Safety and the Decent Human Life, is part of a longer program of work, which I'm hoping will issue in a book, perhaps not too far away. And um, it is also part of a project that has already led to an edited volume, Migration and Political Theory, with Lee Yippie from uh, the LSE that was published just in 2016. Uh, Sarah is also interested in philosophy and the arts and philosophy and methodology, and I think we'll be seeing glimpses of both of those quite likely in this paper. So, Sarah, over to you. Good evening. Thank you so much. Thank you to the Aristotelian Society for this wonderful invitation. I feel really honoured to be here. And um, thank you all for coming on this not-so-lovely October evening. And, of course, it's a real honour for me to be doing this under the presidency of Joe Wolfe, who's been such an academic inspiration to me. So thank you all. I'm going to begin with... A preamble, it's your kind of added value for making your way out here tonight, and I want to set the paper in context. So since around 2015, 2016, I've had the great good fortune of being involved in some collaborations with people in the arts. So for example, I've been working with a choreographer on a dance about maps and borders, that's the photograph here, Maps by Sivan Rubinstein. And I've also been involved with Human Rights Theatre Company, Ice and Fire, developing a play about the ethics of migration restrictions. And I don't know if any of you have done this sort of thing, but my impressions before I began, I think, were something a bit like this. What I'll do as philosopher is sort of sweep in and give offer my pearls of wisdom about the ethics of migration, maybe hand over a few papers, and we'll have a little chat, and then I'll go back home, or maybe back to my office and carry on my merry way, and they'll do with it what they, what they will. And of course, the reality has been quite different from that set of expectations. In the first place, the collaboration has been much deeper, so I've had much more of a role than I anticipated in the artistic output, as it were. But also, these projects have had a real impact on me and my approach and the issues that I've been interested in. I've kind of described it as a window into another world of people engaging with the same sorts of question and the same sorts of material, but approaching it in quite different ways and with different objectives. But that window is sometimes also reflective. It has a reflective surface, so you see yourself back. And sometimes what you see is not that great. <laughs> sometimes what you see um, gives you pause for thought. And one of the things that I've found is that when working with people in the arts about migration and refugees, it just goes without saying for them that any kind of project like that is going to involve refugees and migrants from the very beginning. 
their voices, their perspectives are going to be central to how these projects develop. And if refugees and migrants are not involved, it will be a very carefully thought through <coughs> reason for that. It's not just an oversight. Now, as many of you will probably know, if you're working on the ethics of migration within philosophy, it certainly doesn't seem to go without saying that the voices of refugees and other migrants should be involved in this process, and certainly not from the very start. So that's the kind of background to this paper. It's some of the inspiration for what goes on here, because what I wanted to think about was what happens when the voices of migrants, when the voices of refugees are left out? What are the costs of leaving out those kinds of voices? And at the same time, what are the benefits of trying to include them? But what are the kinds of pitfalls involved in such an exercise? So that's the background. Let's see how it pans out. So the paper, the real paper in earnest, begins with two texts, an exhibition and a book. In 2017, I visited this exhibition Call Me By My Name, Stories from Calais and Beyond at London's New Migration Museum. And that exhibition documented fragments from life in the Calais jungle, that semi-formal camp which was home to thousands of refugees and other migrants. And on display in that exhibition was artwork by the jungle's own residents and also pieces from visitors to the camp and from members of the public. And something that really struck me when I was visiting that exhibition was the apparent significance of cultural life and community in the jungle. And here I mean culture in the sense of arts and culture. And the visitor really got the impression that books, music, art, social spaces, creativity in general were absolutely central features of life in the camp and that these were vital for making that life bearable for the residents. And that wasn't just my impression, it was corroborated by various other visitors to the camp who also commented on the creative life there, on the difference between the physical conditions, which were miserable, and the life of the mind, which was very vibrant and vivid in the camp. And one reason why this observation about the cultural life in the jungle made such an impression on me is that the importance of art and creativity and cultural community are rarely emphasized in public discourse about refugee movements and appropriate responses to them. It's also an aspect of refugee experience that's missing from a lot of the philosophical literature in the ethics of migration. And of course, as we know, many issues don't receive their due consideration. But I suspect that this particular omission isn't just coincidental. Rather, I thought it was likely to be a symptom of a wider phenomenon already familiar from contemporary political and philosophical discussion about refugees, and that's the near absence of voices of refugees. Little attention has been paid to what refugees, other migrants and displaced people have been saying about their own experiences, intentions and aspirations. Now my visit to the exhibition just so happened to take place at a time when I was rereading David Miller's Strangers in Our Midst, The Political Philosophy of Immigration. And it was in 
interesting for me to be doing these two things at the same time. You can compare the images yourself here. And in the book, Miller does something that lots of philosophers do when they turn their attention to refugees, and that's starting by asking definitional questions, and in particular, who is a refugee? Now, according to the 1951 Refugee Convention definition, a refugee is a person who, and I quote, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, is outside the country of his nationality, or for a person without a nationality, outside his or her country of habitual residence, and is unable, or owing to such fear, unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country. And many philosophers, like Miller himself, ask whether that convention definition is too narrow and restrictive, failing to capture the full range of people who should be considered refugees. And in a move away from the international legal definition, Miller argues instead that we should understand refugees as people whose human rights would be unavoidably threatened if they remain in the place they inhabit, regardless of whether that threat arises from state persecution, state collapse, or natural disaster. So in one sense, that seems to expand on the standard international legal definition with its focus on persecution. However, and this is important, refugeehood for Miller relates to the conditions in the place one is currently living rather than in one's country of origin. And for him, it's not the source of the threat that matters for whether or not somebody qualifies as a refugee, but whether, and I quote, the threat could be averted without the person moving. So, for example, by creating a safe haven within current state borders, or by erecting temporary accommodation for earthquake victims. So he's clear that there's a counterfactual element that's central to his definition of a refugee. Could the threat be averted without the person moving? If it could, he thinks, the person is not, strictly speaking, a refugee. And Miller distinguishes between refugees and economic migrants. And that distinction is a key feature of his argument because he maintains that states have considerably more stringent duties to refugees than they have to the people he calls economic migrants. And economic migrants, on his view, are people who move for any reason other than unavoidable threat to their human rights. So something interesting happens at the end of the book in a postscript where Miller wonders out loud whether the so-called European migration crisis of 2015, as he calls it, presents a challenge for the position that he's defended. And in particular, this revisionist definition of refugee. And a possible source of discomfort, he notes, is that on his definition, it appears that some refugees essentially become economic migrants simply by moving on. So for example, he says, refugees from Syria who move from Jordan or Lebanon to Greece or from Greece to Germany 
don't appear to qualify as refugees on his definition because, as he puts it, they were already located in places where their basic rights either are or could be secured. Now, I should say this way of characterizing the issue is in direct tension with UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency's own guidance on the question. They emphasize that a refugee does not cease to be a refugee simply because they leave one host country to travel to another. They say a person is a refugee because of the lack of protection by their country of origin. But in the end, Miller concludes that people who, in his words, have decided to quit refugee camps in which they were protected against attack, but where opportunities to work were inadequate, to move on, don't qualify as refugees. And therefore, he thinks it's legitimate for European governments to discourage them from entering their territories. Now, this conclusion, and indeed this whole way of framing the issue, didn't sit comfortably with the evidence from the Calais exhibition. I found the suggestion that people effectively forfeit their refugee status if they move on from places where they're protected against attack to be alarming and concerning, as I'm going to explain in more detail tonight. Now, experiencing these texts at the same time prompted me to draw comparisons and contrasts between them. And one obvious difference, I've trailered it already, between the two, is the degree of engagement between refugee and, sorry, the degree of engagement with refugee and other migrant perspectives. Now, whereas Miller is concerned to give voice to popular anxieties about immigration, he shows less concern about engaging with the anxieties of refugees and other migrants. In fact, he explicitly cautions against <coughs> judging an immigration policy by thinking about the way in which it might affect specific individuals subject to it. Now, a complex set of issues around which voices dominate and which are heard, which are marginalized, ignored, or silenced, have risen to greater prominence in philosophy thanks to important work in areas such as feminist philosophy and critical philosophy of race. I'd like to bring these concerns to bear on debates in the ethics of migration. My paper has two main objectives. They're both methodological and substantive. So first, I want to think about how engaging with voices of refugees might contribute to a more nuanced understanding of refugee experiences and thus help inform a more nuanced approach to refugee movements. I concentrate in the paper on the case of so-called onward movements, sometimes called secondary movements, and the role of discussions about safety in this debate. Refugees have left their country of origin, and they may travel through and or stop in various countries before moving on. They may or may not seek formal protection in those transit countries. And onward movements is the name given to the uncoordinated and usually irregular movement of asylum seekers and refugees from countries in which they sought or could have sought some form of protection to other countries. And these onward movements are the focus of much critical attention because many states and transnational actors want to manage and curtail this kind of activity. 
Second, I want to highlight and reflect on a common methodological move in political philosophy. And I'm going to propose that there are virtues in rethinking or at least supplementing that approach. So the common move is to assume that first we need to settle our views about something like the requirements of justice, something that we do by reading primarily philosophical texts, primarily other work theorizing about justice, and then thinking carefully. And then these more or less fixed ideas are applied to questions about migration and other such topics. For example, Miller writes, we can't think properly about the specific issue of immigration without knowing where we stand on the wider issue, which is whether and to what extent states are justified in showing what I call compatriot partiality, treating their own citizens more favorably than outsiders. But perhaps it's possible that we can't think properly about the requirements of justice or other crucial theoretical questions without first or possibly simultaneously, thinking carefully about migration. Or at least that thinking about issues like migration will help us clarify and modify provisional thoughts about requirements of justice. Furthermore, perhaps listening to the voices of refugees may help engage productively with some enduring debates about the requirements of justice. So what follows tonight is an attempt to think about how to put these ideas into practice. Now, the call for philosophers to listen to the voices of refugees may sound simple enough, but what does it actually demand? Who should be listening and listening to whom? And in the paper that follows, I draw from interviews, newspaper articles, talks and surveys, but of course there are various alternative approaches. Indeed, many scholars of philosophy are or were themselves refugees and exiles. And some, such as Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin, famously engaged with their own experiences of displacement in their own work. So one obvious and important way of foregrounding migrant perspectives in philosoph philosophical discussion is via the work of philosophers who are or were migrants themselves. Now, then there are the numerous hazards that a project like mine should try to avoid. For example, there should be no suggestion that refugees speak in a single voice. Refugees may have nothing more in common with each other than the experience of crossing a border in search of protection. So generalizing from the comments of some is going to obscure myriad differences in individual experiences. What's more, some people will speak out and be heard, while others will not. And when the voices of refugees are mediated through interviews and paraphrased and abridged, we're only going to see a fragment of a wider picture. Some comments, of course, fit more neatly with favored narratives than others and are repeated as a result. And any attempt to engage with these voices has to acknowledge that the result is going to be an incomplete representation. It's just one contribution to a wider set of narratives. Moreover, I should emphasize that in addition to refugee perspectives, there are other voices that will have much to contribute to this discussion. For example, the voices of people who are not displaced, but who are bearing witness, such as reporters, aid workers, scholars, people in neighboring countries. 
There are displaced people who can't cross borders. And there are the contributions of people who reside in the countries hosting large refugee populations. So there's a bigger picture here. And of course, it hasn't escaped my notice that there may seem something strange about an academic who isn't a refugee and who's speaking from a position of relative privilege, arguing about the importance of making space for the voices of refugees. I can't claim to represent refugees, and in a sense, I'm speaking in their place. For someone who's making the case for listening, I appear to be doing a lot of the talking already. Shouldn't I just move over and leave this space for refugees? But I think that at the same time as acknowledging the risks of this kind of exercise, it's also important to note the dangers of staying silent and retreating from the philosophical discussion about migration and refugees, particularly at this moment. The ways in which countries across the world respond or don't respond to the movement of refugees is one of the defining issues of our era. And my paper is a tentative attempt to think about how to listen sensitively and how to speak, and about the potential pitfalls of doing both, or indeed, neither. Now, knowingly or not, Miller's revisionist definition of refugees feeds into a wider set of narratives about refugee mo movements. His argument that people shouldn't be considered refugees if they leave places where they're protected from attack could have serious implications for many of those in search of international protection. The assumption underlying this idea about the essential connection between refugeehood and safety is recognizable from popular attitudes and responses to onward movement. So let's think about that now. Turning back to the Calais jungle, the residents were refugees and other migrants who'd reached France and wished to enter the UK. Many were from Syria, Afghanistan, Eritrea, Somalia, and Sudan. They were in Calais in part because they were prevented from using legal routes to enter the UK. The British government, of course, made no secret of its <coughs> determination to keep out as many of the jungle's inhabitants as possible. In 2016, you right, might remember, then Prime Minister David Cameron infamously made the following comment. Referring to Jeremy Corbyn and John Macdonald, he said, they met with a bunch of migrants in Calais. They said they could all come to Britain. The only people they never stand up for are the British people and hardworking taxpayers. So as I've already mentioned, according to the 1951 Refugee Convention, and as distinct from Miller's definition, <coughs> a refugee is a person who, owing to a well-founded fear of persecution, for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, is outside his country of nationality and is unable or owing to such fear, unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country. Now there's a great deal of debate, of course, about how exactly to understand the different elements of that now standard international legal definition and whether or not it ought to be amended and extended. However, most parties to this debate recognize this at least as the minimum core of refugeehood. A refugee has left his or her country and has a human right 
to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. That much is widely accepted. But one of the most controversial questions is where people are entitled to go in search of asylum. So we have the duty of non-reformant. That's laid out in Article 33 of the 1951 Refugee Convention. And this prohibits states from returning refugees to places where their lives or freedom may be at risk for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. And that is now considered a principle of customary international law, which means it's binding on all states. Nonetheless, as you probably know already, it's common for states to engage in a variety of so-called non-entree measures, which are designed to prevent refugees from reaching their territories and triggering the protection responsibilities there. States also regularly remove refugees from their jurisdiction without giving them an opportunity to apply for protection. And they maintain that the people in question should have sought or did seek protection elsewhere. And there's growing public suspicion of refugees who've left or want to leave places where, at least in theory, they could have sought protection, such as the <coughs> refugees in France wanting to cross into the UK. One commenter on a YouGov survey, for example, describes refugees crossing state borders within Europe as illegal immigrants because they've already left safe countries. And this sentiment isn't unusual. The emphasis on the relationship between safety and refugeehood is in fact widespread. In fact, the safety rhetoric, as I call it, plays a significant justificatory role in public hostility towards and state practices designed to prohibit onward movements. Some of the emphasis on safety, of course, is understandable and justifiable, but much of it is thoroughly disingenuous, as I want to illustrate. Safety is central to common understandings of why people become refugees. The convention definition itself conjures up images of people who fear that their lives are at risk and who cross borders in search of safety. And from the perspective of refugees, there's no denying that concerns about safety are often pivotal. According to Oxfam in its surveys over 15 years, one thing it's consistently heard is that physical safety is the first vital thing that displaced people are seeking. So it's clear that this search for safety is crucial to understanding refugee movements. And it's unsurprising that safety is also a recurring theme in responses to these movements. And initially, this focus might seem harmless and fitting. The absence of safety in a country is central for reasons for exit. And the return to conditions of safety is central to justifications for the possibility of repatriation. Going back to that country. So, for instance, in UNHCR's 1996 handbook on voluntary repatriation, they emphasize that the pursuit of lasting solutions to refugee problems is oriented first and foremost in favor of enabling a refugee to exercise the right to return home in safety and in dignity. 
And it defines return to safety as return that takes place under conditions of legal safety, such as amnesties, public assurances of personal safety, non-discrimination, freedom from fear of persecution, also physical security, including protection from armed attacks, and material security, access to land and means of livelihood. But if we turn to the practices of states, we see that it's questionable how far the emphasis on safety actually tracks the basic interests of refugees rather than the priorities of those states themselves. Priorities such as controlling immigration figures and reducing asylum applications. In this vein, it's increasingly common for the asylum policies of many countries to include a selection of controversial safe country practices. For instance, a state or a group of states might declare that there's generally no risk of persecution in a particular country or state of countries, set of countries, and it designates those as safe countries of origin. But what that means in practice is that the residents of these supposedly safe countries of origin are going to find it much more difficult, if not impossible, to secure asylum in countries that have made that declaration. In addition, states can choose to remove or return refugees who've entered their jurisdiction to a so-called safe third country, which is then supposed to take responsibility for processing their asylum claims. Now, of course, these policies are dressed up in the language of safety. And the attempts to manage irregular onward movements and close irregular routes are presented as protecting migrants from the real and myriad dangers of clandestine journeys, which include exploitative smugglers, trafficking, and being turned away from subsequent destinations. But this claim often looks insincere, especially because in practice, the closing of one irregular route means increased uses of other, often more dangerous routes. So for example, think about the growing number of deaths that occurred in the Mediterranean Sea following the closure, the closure of the shorter Aegean route between Turkey and Greece. The route between Libya and Italy is much more dangerous, it's longer, more people die. And these policies are very controversial, not least because of the question marks over determining safe country status. So how safe? Safe for whom? You might think, okay, this is done properly. We should expect the process to involve a rigorous assessment of the actual state of human rights in the country, explains Catherine Costello. But in reality, what we find, she says, is that political concerns about the number of asylum seekers and extraneous other kinds of political concerns really dominate this determination process. So for example, the EU's designation of Turkey as a safe country of origin and its well-publicized deal to return asylum seekers to Turkey when they arrive in Greece really speaks volumes here, given Turkey's human rights record. As Mohammed, a Syrian refugee in Lesbos, explained to Oxfam and ActionAid, 
I want to tell Europe that if Turkey was a safe country, I wouldn't have risked the lives of my wife and children and put them in a boat to cross the sea. Now, many lawyers have raised very serious concerns about the ways in which these practices to restrict movement in effect also restrict access to asylum and may indeed be in contravention of international law. Note, as Maria Theresa Gilbazo clarifies, that the duty of non-refoulement, the one I mentioned earlier that's binding on all states, includes the obligation not to reject asylum seekers at the frontiers and to grant them access to a fair and efficient asylum status determination procedure. And, and this is important, there is no duty in international law for an individual to seek asylum in the first country that they enter. So states are doing this for themselves. Now the safety rhetoric, as I've called it, also has trouble accommodating the real practices of many refugees and other migrants who move onwards. They're often compelled to act in ways that compromise their safety, including embarking on dangerous journeys that could end in injury, imprisonment, torture, and death. Again, the eventual quest for safety is usually part of the story, but clearly it isn't the whole story. Consider Patrick Kingsley's description of the decision many African migrants make once they're in Libya and encounter unendurable conditions. He says, without proper paperwork, they can't ask for help from their embassies many of whose staff, in any case, have left the country while hostilities continue. There's little point to returning the way they came across the desert because the cost and risk of death is as great, if not greater, than crossing the sea. So the sea suddenly becomes the realist's choice. And one of the things that Kingsley tries to do in his book is highlight that drawing a very clear distinction between economic migrant and refugee often doesn't make sense in practice. Some people become refugees effectively. There's also something troubling about the assumption that refugees should be satisfied with mere safety, that this is all they can reasonably expect and must prize above all other considerations. I should emphasize safety as a maximum expectation runs counter to the principles underlying the international refugee protection regime. For instance, the 1951 Refugee Convention lays out the basic rights of refugees, and these go well beyond physical safety and include, for example, freedom of movement within the state, rights to work, access to housing, elementary education, and travel documents, and more. Safety as a maximum expectation is also at odds with familiar arguments about the social minimum and the concept of a decent human life from various theories of social justice. As Martha Nussbaum writes in her account of the capabilities approach and its notion of a decent human life, we don't want politics to take mere survival as its goal. And that's a theme to which I'm going to return. So while the emphasis on safety may have its roots in the circumstances that create refugees, it also contributes to the widespread sense 
that refugees may move only in search of safety and that safety is all that they're owed. Focusing on safety to the exclusion of other elements in the story of refugeehood thus threatens to misrepresent the nature of many refugees' experiences and can result in problematic responses to refugee movements. So let's think about why refugees keep moving. Attempting to understand why onward movements happen is crucial to thinking about appropriate responses to them. Let's see what they say about their reasons for moving. Now, of course, safety is a factor here. As Mohammed's comment earlier illustrated, there's the question of whether and in which sense third countries are actually safe, whether they're safe for the relevant individuals, and also whether the places in which refugees are living or made to live are safe. For example, an Afghan woman at Katsikas camp in Greece told interviewers, I can't sleep at night. I don't feel safe. We, two women, live in a tent together and we take turns sleeping. The Conseil d'Etat in France has ruled that the authorities in Calais are exposing migrants there to inhuman and degrading treatment. And while many people are aware that thousands of migrants are dying en route to Europe, there may be less awareness of the fact that hundreds of asylum seekers have died within Europe since the 1990s, in camps, in detention centers, and in prisons. In fact, in one week in 2017, three migrants died in the makeshift refugee camp in Lesbos. So safety for refugees and other migrants certainly is not a given in European countries. But people want to leave supposedly safe third countries for a wide range of reasons that are often not related to or certainly not reducible to safety. There are reasons relating to the conditions in the host country and reasons related to the destination countries. So for example, the interviewers for an Oxfam and Action Aid study on refugees and migrants in Greece reported that almost everyone to whom they spoke said they didn't wish to remain in Greece. Fatima from Syria in Lesbos explained, life in the camp is very hard. One day is like a lifetime. We want to feel our humanity and to have our respect. We feel forgotten. We want the world to know what's happening to people like us. And Wahid from Afghanistan, living in a camp in Greece, said, we feel we've overstayed our welcome in a country that's struggling to support itself and its own people. The Greek people have their own problems. Refugees and undocumented migrants in France report that they're on the receiving end of frightening levels of brutal treatment by police, including the use of tear gas and physical violence. Ahmed Mohammed, a Syrian living in Zarqa in Jordan, fled Syria after his young daughter was shot. He says, that's why I left Syria. Now I'm going to risk the danger of going to Europe for my kids. Even if I die, I need them to have a better future. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. Now many express the desire to go to a specific 
country in order to be reunited with family members from whom they may have been separated for many years. Interviewers for Oxfam and Action Aid report that the urgent yearning to be reunited with family was a constant theme, but that the process for reunification is confusing. Little information is provided, and a narrow definition of family means that for many, family reunification isn't an option. Another recurring reason refugees want to move on is the anxiety and despair and sense of hopelessness that comes from existing in limbo. As they wait in temporary accommodation, their lives on hold with little information about what might happen. The Oxfam and Action Aid report explains that the state of physical, psychological and legal limbo in which people find themselves in camps within Europe has led to a sense of hopelessness and desperation. Laura McFarlane, who worked as a medic at Moria camp in Lesbos, describes a hunger strike and multiple attempted suicides at the camp. She explains that a lack of knowledge about the future creates an overwhelming sense of uncertainty, which, she says, can exacerbate pre-existing psychological problems and is contributing to new diagnoses of anxiety and depression. So in short, people move or wish to move from third countries for a variety of factors, and the notion that it's unjustifiable to leave for reasons other than safety <coughs> fails to take seriously the living conditions and experiences of refugees and migrants. <coughs> so if we look again and more closely at Miller's argument in Strangers in Our Midst, we actually find that his broader assessment of the needs and rights of refugees is more nuanced than the line about protection against attack. Indeed, his suggestion that people should not be regarded as refugees if they leave a place where they're protected from attack but lack other opportunities seems to be inconsistent with his own understanding of refugeehood. To repeat, on his view, refugees are people whose human rights are at unavoidable risk in the place they inhabit and who must leave that place in order for their human rights to be protected. However, human rights, even on minimal conceptions, are far more extensive than bare physical security. Miller himself explains that there are requirements that people everywhere need to have fulfilled if they're going to lead decent human lives. Here's what he says. There are activities and practices that are present everywhere. Human beings work productively, play, raise families, make music, participate in religious rituals, and in order to do these things, certain preconditions must be fulfilled. So he says we can then define human needs as the needs that must be met if people are to be able to lead minimally decent lives, engaging, if they so choose, in each of the activities on the list that make up the human form of life. And correspondingly, human rights are the rights whose possession allows people to meet these needs, securing them against various potential threats. So it seems clear that people's human rights can be at unavoidable risk even where their physical security isn't threatened. For example, where they're forcibly separated from family members, unable to pra 
practice their religion, unable to work, and have no prospect of being able to do so. More than that, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights includes the following. Article 22. Everyone, as a member of society, has the right to social security and is entitled to realization through national effort and international cooperation, and in accordance with the organization and resources of each state, of the economic, social, and cultural rights indispensable for his dignity and the free development of his personality. Article 27.1. Everyone has the right freely to participate in the cultural life of the community, to enjoy the arts, and to share in scientific advancement and its benefits. So in other words, if we're concentrating on unavoidable risks to human rights, then it looks as though refugees may, and do, have numerous human rights-related, though not necessarily safety-related, reasons for leaving third countries. Reasons which in no way compromise their status and or entitlement as refugees. Now, in the last section of the paper, I want to reflect on the ways in which engaging with the voices of refugees and migrants could contribute to theorizing about justice and related issues. As I mentioned in political philosophy, a common approach to thinking about how to respond to refugee movements and other questions about migration is this. Develop a framework or a theory or adopt an existing framework or theory, normally about justice, and then apply that to this case. On this model, it may look as though theorists first have to decide where they stand on a selection of fundamental questions about global and social justice, and then draw on those answers to help solve puzzles about migration. But what about the possibility that thinking about refugees and migration can help to clarify and answer some of those and other fundamental questions in political philosophy. So to illustrate how this might work in practice, let's go back to this idea of a decent human life, which is central to a variety of contemporary theories about global justice. And again, in his discussion of human rights, Miller mentions the difficulties involved in trying to identify a suitably universal set of human needs and the rights that he thinks are grounded in them. And elsewhere, he argues that the purpose of a doctrine of human rights is to specify a global minimum, people everywhere, regardless of societal membership or cultural affiliation, are owed as a matter of justice. So how might one theorize about this global minimum in a way that takes proper account of cultural and other differences, but doesn't rely on culturally specific and thus not properly universal evaluations? And the same question is raised by advocates and critics of the capabilities approach. Martha Nussbaum takes this issue very seriously and maintains it's possible to determine a list of basic capabilities all human beings should have. And we do that by thinking about the answer to this question. And the question is, what activities characteristically performed by human beings are so central that they seem constitutive of a life that's truly human? In other words, 
what are the functions without the availability of which we would regard a life as not or not fully human. And to curate and support this list, Nussbaum draws on testimony from women across the world, including from Bangladesh, China, India, and the USA. And she states that this list is open-ended and non-exhaustive. And her list of central human functional capabilities is up here. It's the capabilities for life, bodily health, bodily integrity, senses, imagination and thought, emotions, practical reason, affiliation, which is about relationships, other species, play, and control over one's environment. That's a contracted version of her list. So let's go back to my discussion of the Call Me By My Name exhibition. This list of basic capabilities seems to cohere well with that exhibition's implicit message. The opportunities to engage with and in art and cultural life and creativity and community are fundamental components of a decent human life. Listening to the words of refugees, there can be no doubting the profound importance of control over environment. Here's Leymar Gabawi reflecting on her visit to Jordan's Atari refugee camp. She says, Memories came flooding back of my own experience as a teenager living in a refugee camp in Ghana. The scenes were immensely familiar. Homes insufficiently built to protect families from the sweltering sun, an infrastructure focused solely on keeping people alive, but not providing any space to truly live and thrive. What's more, it seems reasonable to suppose that refugees who are from various different parts of the world speak different languages, have different cultural practices, different educational backgrounds and religions, who've been compelled to leave their countries, their homes, their towns, everything they're familiar with, who've in many cases experienced unimaginable suffering, are in a prime position to offer evidence and guidance on the conditions necessary for a decent human life. Engaging with refugees and displaced people and trying to hear what they say about why they're moving or not moving, what they need, may provide an impeccable basis for trying to make these universal prescriptions about what things, about such things as a global minimum that people everywhere are owed as a matter of justice. So it may be that existing ideas about human rights and capabilities should be modified to accommodate, for instance, what refugees report about that special form of suffering involved in a life in enforced limbo. So with that in mind, and given the objectives of this piece, it seems fitting for the last words on refugees, safety, and the idea of a decent human life to go to a Sudanese refugee in Calais who didn't want to give his name. I do not want to stay in France for the same reason I didn't want to stay in my home country. They do not treat us like humans here. They treat us like animals. I will try to cross the border until I can be a human being again. Thank you.